listen to the new project. Uh, obviously, I know some of the history too. And uh, yeah, you've had an interesting career. You know, it's kind of exciting that you're getting now kind of like, would you call it like a second chance in this band with Freak Show? Yeah, I guess uh, judges, what do you say? Uh, the judges will accept that one, yeah. <laughs> the second chance, yeah. Uh, it's long overdue. It's a long overdue chance, actually. Um, you know, being so uh, overlooked in the business for so long, you know, uh, everybody says you deserve it. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah, and then Greg uh, Chason, who was the original bass player, was actually the one that recommended you. And didn't he follow you when you left Steeler? I'm glad you brought that up. Uh Here's, here's the weird Twilight Zone connection of the dots. I was in a band called Steeler with a guy named Ron Keel. And then I was in a band called Surgical Steel with a guy named Jim Keeler. <laughs> uh, and then Greg Chason followed me in both of those bands. Oh, he followed you in both. Okay, that's funny. Yeah, he, he well, he came in in Steeler. Uh, after Malmsteen and I left, uh, there was uh, uh, Mitch Perry came in and Ron Murray on bass, but Ron Murray got his hand caught in a door while they were at uh, playing Perkins Palace. So he was out of action. So Greg Chason uh, uh, slipped into that. So he, he kind of followed me technically in, in Steeler. And then when I was in Surgical Steel in, in 87, uh, when I left the band, Greg came. He, he was originally in Surgical Steel years before that. So he just kind of returned back to the band, but it was like right after I left. So that's kind of a weird uh, Twilight Zone kind of dot connection of dots there. Yeah, and then you don't you also have a connection with Carlos Cavazo uh, because you yes. almost joined Quiet Riot at one point. Like that's, what happened that's there? Very true. Um, I was in the studio with Sin. We were recording our album master demo by uh, uh, with, with Dana Strum was producing that. And uh, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. I don't remember how he got my number, but a very inebriated Kevin Debro called me up and and said that they wanted me to to come fill in and and do do a, 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 a tour with them. And I said, "This is a joke, right?" I mean, I'm, I've always been the I'm at, at the brunt of somebody's joke at some point. He says, "No, I'm serious." He goes, "I'm I'm drunk as, as hell right now, and I'm, I'm stoned off my face, but I'm I'm serious." He goes, your name came up, you were recommended, and uh, we want you to uh, uh, do this tour with us. And he says, the other thing is you can't tell anybody. you got to keep it under wraps. And I said, all right, mum's the word. And he says, you're going to meet with Frankie Benelli. Frankie's going to hand off the, the, the set list to you on a cassette. You'll learn those songs. And then you're going to go work with Carlos and, and, and until we can do a whole band rehearsal. I said, all right, fine. So uh, I met Frankie. He gave me the tape. Um, I bet I went to Carlos's house uh, a couple of times and we started working on the songs again. I, I, I kept my word. I didn't say anything to anyone. Uh, what happened one time, Frankie picked me up and I was at his house in the Hollywood Hills and he had some, somebody showed up at the door, a couple of girls and, and, and I was in one room. I could see through the other couple of rooms. They were in the other rooms talking to him and they did look, turn their head. They looked, they saw me, but nothing was said. You know, I didn't really acknowledge him or anything. So it could have been that or somehow, I don't know how he has a reputation for this, but Dana Strum had his fingers on everything going on in L.A. The guy was like connected. Somehow he found out and called me up and told me, don't take the gig. They're just going to stab you in the back. They'll use you and stab you in the back and then dump you. He goes, don't do it. Don't do it like that. And I'm like, I'm like, how do you know? 
how did you find out about this? He goes, he goes, hey man, it's L.A., it's Hollywood. That's that, that that's the, like the the backpedal, the default backpedal. I don't remember how he found out. Uh, people talk, I guess. Um, uh, their manager at the time, Warren Etner, got me um, uh, expedited me a, a passport really quickly out of the federal building down in West L.A. And again, I, I said nothing. And one night I walked into the rainbow and then Frankie was there and he took issue with me. He went ballistic. You know what at me? I, I, he says, I told you to keep your mouth shut. He goes, the whole world knows. I said, I, I don't know how. I said, no, I'm, I'm done in Venice. I live in Venice at the time. I, I'm not talking to anybody. So I don't know how the word got out, but it wasn't for me. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't believe me. He got mad. Warren Etner got mad. They, they just, they withdrew the whole thing. And, uh, and, and, uh, they hired some unknown kid. I found out they did this, the South American tour. And then when he came back, they dumped it, they dumped the kid. So, uh, like that. And, and I mentioned that when, when we were shooting the video, the freak show videos, uh, we went out, took a dinner break and, and Carlos was sitting across from me like you are. Um, uh, and I said, whatever had, you remember that issue? Whatever happened with that? I never got any closure on that. He goes, I don't know. He goes, I didn't hear anything about you know, any of the details about it. I just said, you know, you were in and then you were out. And I, I really don't remember anything about it. So uh, that was that, you know, but Carlos so, and I had a little bit of already worked together briefly in the past. Um, and I knew Stett when he first got to L.A., uh, Stett and I, while I was working at a, a, a moving company called Starving Students, they had, you know, huge van lines and, and we would move people's, you know, from apartments and houses. And Stett came in with, with another guy, long haired rock and roll guy. And uh, and that's how we met and we became friends. We went out on the trucks and we were working together. We were moving people, you know, their furniture and whatnot. And that's how we first bonded. And we have been friends ever since. So that's kind of how, you know, Seth and I connected and then Carlos and I connected. Here we are multi-decades later. And and uh, Greg, what happened was um, there was uh, somebody posted in Facebook that uh, Steel Panther had played or were taping a segment with uh, America's Got Talent, right? So, so I got in on that that discussion thread. Well, I, don't, I don't remember whose whose thread it was, and I said, you know, I should be in a band like that. I don't know why I'm not in a band like Steel Panther. And everybody went, yeah, you know, you're right. And somehow, Greg Chason saw that that post, and he typed in, tagged Ronnie's name. And I, Roddy and I know each so many say of the same people in this industry, yet we've never met. You know, he's worked with a lot of big, big stars and a lot of people in the industry. He's a, he's an excellent songwriter. He's got a reputation for, you know, all, all incredible songwriting. And yet we never met. Things like that happen all the time in the, in the business. So Greg put me in touch with Ronnie. He contacted Ronnie because uh, uh, he he had just finished recording the Freak Show album with them, and he and they, he says, but I can't commit to the band. I, I'm you know he was in Atomic Kings at the time. He just left that band, but he's got his, his guitar store, music store in, in Phoenix, uh, a bizarre guitar. You know he's settled there uh, in Phoenix, family and and whatnot. And uh, he says I I can't commit to the album. I have too many other other commitments. So the conversation I was told, Ronnie says, well who can you can you refer anybody, recommend someone. And he says, Rick Fox. So first thing he says, first thing out of my mind was, goes, Rick is the guy you're looking for. He's a good bass player. Uh, this music has his name all over it. He's the guy. Who, and plus, he'll promote the hell out of you. Rick's like always promoting something. So so uh, uh, he put, put, hooked me up with Ronnie. And Ronnie, and I talked over the phone and we discussed some things. And, and he talked to Stett. He said Stett gave the thumbs up. 
you talk to Carlos. Carlos says, yeah, he goes, I'll, I'll work with Rick. Yeah, definitely. So I got the vote of, of uh, confidence from everybody. And he says, you're, you're, you're got the gig, you're in the band. And I hadn't even played with them yet. You know, this is just, you know, on, on reputation alone and, and, and good recommendations like that. And, and Greg and I have become closer friends over the years. We were not that close in the eighties. Uh, and, and I think Greg will, will admit he's, a, he's kind of a cynical guy. Uh, he, he, much like myself, he doesn't tolerate people's drama and, and BS like that. And, and he'll call it right on the spot. And, and sometimes you, you tend to rub people the wrong way in the business by doing that because you don't tolerate their drama. So, um, uh, um, Greg and I have, uh, over time I've, I've talked in, 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 uh, on the internet about, uh, my base influences. And I said, I mentioned Hubble pie and grand funk railroad and uh, um, Uriah Heap, you know, bands with with really solid bass players, melodic, solid bass players. Even though I'm I'm kind of known as being a metal guy and I played Steeler and play hard rock and heavy metal, a lot of people don't know my roots. And when Greg saw that, he kind of he talked to me. He says, "You know, I got the same. I didn't know you were into these same bands." I said, "Yeah, this is this is the era. You know, in the '70s, from '60s to '70s, uh, this was a lot of what I was listening to and my influences were." And Greg goes, well, I have the same influences. So we had that in common. So there's with that commonality, Greg figured, well, if I can't, I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, I can't commit to this. I'll give you the next best guy who can who could do that. And Greg said, when I first got um the scratch tracks to put my bass lines to, he goes, none of these songs had titles. There was no no uh vocals, it was just rhythm tracks, just guitar and drums. So I wrote what I was feeling at that particular moment. He says, this should be real easy for you. He goes, he goes, you can do whatever you want with my bass lines. He goes, it's, it's, you know, free reign, you, you know, do what you feel. And I said, well, out of deference, I have to play them the way they're recorded on the album. And he goes, and you know, we can always do whatever fills you want in between that. And I went, all right, that that's fair enough. And so I've, I've been spending the last several months, uh, uh, you know, uh, learning the album and, and I've got, you know, a large majority of, of Greg's uh, bass lines down like that. He's a very tasteful player uh, in the pocket. And, and I like what he's done in, in his patterns of what he's playing, what he's saying, what he's, what he brought to the table in, in the, uh, uh, in, in his presentation of his bass lines and, and all the freak show songs, he nailed it. He totally nailed it. And I'm thinking, Oh, I probably would have played something that's the same like that too. And I've, I've added a couple of my own flourishes here and there, some other little things to that. But when I said to him, what did you play in this song? What did you play? And he goes, I don't know. They didn't have titles. He goes, now I know what songs they were. <laughs> like that. Uh -huh. So uh, like like in in, uh, um, in the beginning of uh, the intro of uh, uh, Full on Shred, FOS, uh, there's that intro. And then Greg does some kind of like a harmonic thing on a string. There's like a, a stop. And he says, I said, what are you doing? Like, like a harmonic thing? And he says, yeah. And I said, yeah, because I, I figured live, they're not going to hear that. That goes by so fast, that little plung. So I, you know, I just slide up and I do like a a, a really high uh, a G chord. So it's a little bit more pronounced, and you can hear it. I I copy some things uh, like from Lemmy. Lemmy played bass chords, and and me being in so many bands over the years with one guitar, I got a I got a wide area to fill, you know. And there's going to be granted some dropout if there's no extra guitar. So I've learned, you know, do some fills here and there, and and, and fatten up the the empty space. With bass chords here and there, you know, two chord, three three note chord, things like that, uh, and that's that's kind of what I did in some of the the, the freak shows uh, material. So, well, yeah, everybody will get to hear that when we finally get out and do it live.
So you guys have uh, plans for upcoming live shows? Uh, that's more of a Ronnie and Stet question. Uh, um, Ronnie, obviously the band leader, so he makes the decisions, but he's put uh, the, the bookings in Stet's, that's Stet's department. Stet's real connected you know, in the industry, obviously with Wasp and Metal Church. They just, just came off a Metal Church tour. Uh, so uh, Stet is going to predominantly handle, as far as it's told to me, Stet's handling all the bookings and the shows. And Seth says to me, if you see something you think I, I might be interested in, chances are I probably already know about it, but send it to me anyway, and I'll take a look at it. Because he knows all these promoters. Yeah. You know. So how did they so it was more Ronnie started this band? Because I, I was just curious, like that Carlos is in this band. It's almost like he but he didn't want to do Quiet Riot. Because I feel like if he wanted, I'm sure that they would have love to have him back as an original member. And and I feel like he'd almost have full reign of that band now as one of the lone living uh, members with well, him and Rudy could run it together, but he'd, he'd rather do this than the quiet riot. Uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, it's not my place to speak for Carlos. Um, I think there's probably some personal or, or political politics, you know, band politics. There's some reasons why Carlos does not want to rejoin quiet riot. Uh, and he, you know, in his own words, he said, I don't really don't need to tour with anybody. He goes, I'm happy to sit at home. He goes, I'm fine. I'm doing well. I don't really need to go run out and play with any bands. He goes, uh, Ronnie asked me to play on this. I really like the material. And sure, I'm, I'll do shows with you guys. I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll be a member of the band like that. And and right now he was filling in with uh, his brother's band uh, with Hurricane because they had some gigs already booked and they didn't want to lose them. So uh, his brother Tony advertised that Carlos was in Hurricane. So naturally people are going, well, if he's in Hurricane, I thought he was in Freak Show. What's going on? So <laughs> I said, I called Ronnie and said, what, what, people are asking me, what, am I, what do you want me to tell him? Said he's just filling in. He's not like joining Hurricane permanently. Okay. Uh, you know, and Tony Tony may have some some issue with that. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, the way it was told to me, Carlos is just filling in. He's helping out his brother's band. Okay. But he's a, he, he's a member of, of Freak Show. So oh. um uh, again, I can't speak for Carlos about why he doesn't want to do uh, a quiet riot. He has done some stuff with Rat, of course. Uh, he even did stepped in and, and did some stuff with uh, King Cobra, you know. But as far as I know, he's not going out with them either. So yeah. So would it be like a lot of shows with Freak Show? Like you guys talking like national or world tour? Or are you just saying like a few live shows, kind of near close nearby where you all live? Uh, you know, from your lips to God's ears, knock on wood. You know, we, we'll get something. I, I again, it's. That's Stet's department, so I don't know. We're, we're hoping for bigger shows, obviously, because right. you have a magnitude of Carlos Cavazzo and Stet, you know, um, and, and uh, like and that, yourself. That, well, you know, I, I had never attained that A level that they've been at. I haven't toured. The, the, the last time I toured a tour was in Canada in like 1980, 81. You know, I played like five of the biggest clubs in Toronto. Uh, and that was that was it. Uh, if you want to consider that, a, a, that's like a tour. It was just over a week, several. It's like uh, three nights in five different clubs. Hmm. Each, each three nights in each club. Uh, Nickelodeon, Spats, uh, uh, you know, all the biggest clubs that were at the time in Toronto. Uh, so I haven't any, done anything on the magnitude like like the rest of the guys have done it. You know, uh, my peers and whatnot. So um, I'd have to you know put my cats in boarding because uh, my wife passed away. So I don't have. There's nobody to watch watch the cats. Like that, and and, uh, and and so I I we hope to get you know some bigger shows, you know, and and get out there and do it. We haven't even played together in the same room yet, and the anticipation is like it's itching us. We're we're burning to get in the room and 
and play together, you know. So are you thinking uh, like a headlining club tour, or are you thinking maybe get an opening slot on a bigger, more uh well like a more established band? Because you guys are obviously a newer band, even though you have the reputation, but uh might be easier to just jump on to a band that's already got a, a tour yeah. going. I, I'm I'm thinking that's that's the way Ronnie wants to go. He he wanted he, he said he wanted to go do um go out and support Queensryche. And then I saw uh, on Facebook Queensryche and uh uh, Armored Saint announced that they got they got that gig. So I, I sent it to Ronnie because he hadn't seen it yet. I said, "Well, there goes the Queensryche, you know, slot. Uh, Armored Saint is is the support for Queensryche." So, uh, and he was disappointed, uh, you know, obviously. So, uh, but if we can get what something, about, like, here's a crazy idea. What if you toured with Quiet Riot and then maybe Carlos steps in for a few songs? Just for fun with choir, I think that'd be a fun uh, show. That's that's not my call. <laughs> I can't <laughs> I can't speak for that. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm sure that's, that's you know uh, very very can handle it's very capable capably. Yeah. Uh, well, there's so like many that. great bands of that era that you guys would uh, pair up nicely with. So I'm sure if you just keep you know put your your top choices queens right maybe then just keep going down the list until you find something. I'm sure something. Yeah match yeah. up for sure yeah yeah it's interesting though you so you have not actually done a tour since that because i know you you were in a bunch of bands in the 80s and and you played on the steeler record and and you played a little bit with wasp but but not an actual tour since the early 80s that's that's true uh and looking back i i retrospectively it looks like most of the bands except from the bands that i formed most of the other bands that i joined i was replacing somebody else you know, they were letting go of somebody. These, you know, they wanted me in the. They, you know, I apparently, I guess, I bring something to the table that was missing with them. Whether it's in my style on stage, whatever I bring to, uh, by way of experience to the bands. But I kept joining all of these bands that I was replacing their bass players, and unfortunately, it looked great at the time, and they wound up becoming sinking ships. Hmm. So, so after after Sin broke up, uh, my last lineup of Sin. And that imploded. Uh, I got an offer to uh, audition for Burn. Burn was formerly Hellion, you know, minus Anne Boleyn. And and so I knew those. And Dana produced their demo as well. So just out as a, as a for, I guess a formality. I said, Do I really need to audition? You guys know what I could do. Jesus, everybody's heard the Steeler album. They said, Well, just as a formality. So I learned five songs. I went in, and and I I I that uh, didn't just play the songs. I didn't just stand there. Um, I moved around with the guys in the band. I went up to the guitar, went up to Ray, went up to Alan, and I was like playing close to them, you know, physically. And then, you know, I kind of went back. Uh, I, I don't just stand still. I'm not one of those guys that stand still. I, I, I feel the music. It moves through me. I interpret it physically, and and that's what I do. And they dug that, and, and they said the, um, they left a decision over who was going to be the bass slot and burn with with their drummer Sean, and. Uh, they called, they called me up and they said, well, Sean decided and they want this other guy. And I said, all right, fine. A few days later, they called me back and they said, well, come to find out the guy that we that Sean uh, said okay to, he doesn't own any gear. He doesn't have a way to get around. He's got no amps, no basses, no nothing. He just kind of borrowed it, stepped in, did the gig. And so um, you, would you, you came in second, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but would you reconsider? joining us because we really liked playing with you i said you know and not not to be you know difficult or anything i seriously my my the way my head was at at the time still trying to wrap my head around the the, the uh disillusion this uh dissolving of sin i said to alan 
let me think about it like that, you know, and, and not, not egotistical or anything. I said, sure, let me just, let me just think about this. Let me process this. And and a day or two went by. Alan called me up again. He goes, well, have you decided? Have you decided? And I went, okay. So, and I had seen Byrne play. You know, they, they sounded like a, a, almost a little like Dio because their singer at the time, Richard Perico, he was like a Ronnie Jr. Kind of, kind of resembled him a little. He had a lot of similar uh, uh, delivery uh, as Ronnie did. So I, I said, okay. So I joined Byrne. I played with them for several months. We were rehearsing at Mates in North Hollywood. And, and they were managed by Niji. You know, uh, went Ronnie's management company, uh, Niji. Uh, uh, you know, him, uh, Ronnie and Wendy. But the guy that managed us directly, his name was Kurt Lorraine. So he was, he was you know, on the staff below, below Wendy. And Wendy at the time was managing Rough Cut. And, and Ronnie really wanted, the way it was told to me, Ronnie wanted a more push behind Burn and less push at that time behind Rough Cut. This is just what I'm being told. And so uh, that's kind of where it was at. And then, um, then they fired the singer. They fired Richard Perico. So I approached, um, uh, what's his name? Um, original singer from Anthrax. Uh, oh neil turbin yeah neil, i think i yeah. had that in my notes yeah and then he yeah, turned it yeah. down though right. yeah uh neil turned it down uh, and we were friends at the time we're not now but we're, we were friends at the time and uh so he said he wants to do his own thing because i had already jammed with with deal that's why his name came to my mind he's he had the voice that was capable of singing birds material and he said no, i want to do my own thing i went all right fine so uh i was at the time i was friends with uh the road manager for loudness they had just released their Lightning Strikes album. It was doing really well. And it was going to be their first headline tour of the U.S. with Poison and Cinderella flip-flopping each city over who's going to open and who's going to do the middle slot like that. And I'm friends with, I was friends with Scotty Ross, who was uh, a Poison's manager, tour manager at the time. Like I got to ride with them on the bus and whatnot. Um, so uh, well, you got to ride with the, on the bus with Poison? Yeah. Oh, you got to, there's got to be a story there. That sounds amazing. Back they say, the come 80s, on. You know, yeah, yeah. Scotty goes, come on, get on the bus, ride with us, like that, you know. And, and I knew the guys in point when when Steeler moved out of the Steeler Mansion, you know, the roach infested place yeah. where we were living. Poison moved in, <laughs> and, and I was at one of their after parties at their house up in the Hollywood Hills, and that's how I bonded with with Bobby Dahl. He says, "Yeah, we moved into there." Brett's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we moved in there." And 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 Bobby goes, "I had the nicest room. It had like a." a bunk bed, like, like you would see in a railroad coach and curtains and, and the carpet it was decorated really nice. I said, that was my room. <laughs> it was oh, right next funny. to the, right next to the rehearsal room. So Bobby goes, yeah, I got the best room in, 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 in the, you know, in the band and in, in, in the facility like that. So that's kind of how we became friends like that. And then, um, and so poison and Cinderella were kind of, you know, and, and I had uh tour laminates from loudness so I could go wherever I wanted with them. So, um, I went to see them in Bakersfield. I went to see them here. I went to see them. I, I went out to Phoenix. I don't remember how I got there, but I went to see them in Phoenix. And I was walking around at, you know, the, the, the concert hall. And I met this guy who's a local promoter, uh, Brad Laughlin. And I talked to him for a few minutes. And, and he saw that I had, a, I gave him an extra laminate. So I said, don't, don't drift. All right. I'm responsible for these passes. And, and so we were walking around, walking around. And he introduced me to Jim Keeler. But then of surgical steel. And he said, This is you know, Rick Fox, blah, blah, blah. He goes, Oh, yeah. He goes, You played on the Steeler album. I said, Yeah, that's me. He goes, Yeah, you played with Momstein. I said, Yeah, I did. 
like that. First bassist on U.S. soil to go toe-to-toe with mom scene on a daily basis and survive. So, uh, and that was brief. It was a brief meeting. That was it. Uh, uh, I went back to L.A. And literally, as I put the key in a door and I'm walking into my apartment, my phone is ringing. And it's this guy, Brad Laughlin, who's going, Jimmy wants you to come back to Phoenix. He wants you to surgical steel. You got you to gotta come right away. You got to come right away. I said, easy, easy. Lighten up, Francis. Let, let me let me see what this is about first. I don't even know you guys. I don't know anything about. So I made some phone calls. I said, what's the story? Was who is Surgical Steel? I hadn't hadn't seen them in uh, in that movie yet that they were in, uh, a Thunder Rally, whatever it was. And and uh, somebody said, yeah, if you like Judas Priest, you like Surgical Steel. He sounds just like Judas Priest. Uh, oh, okay. So they I called up Keeler and they flew me out back to Phoenix. I brought my bass. I said, when is the audition? And, and Jimmy Jimmy called everybody chief. He goes, chief, there's no audition. You got the gig. I know you can play. I got the Steeler album. Here's the tape. Here's the songs. Learn these. We're recording an album next week. That's how it was presented to me. I was like, wow. So uh, I stayed at Keeler's house. I was woodshedding, learning the songs. And, uh, and he brought in another drummer. Because what happened is Jimmy had sacked the whole lineup of, of the original lineup of Surgical Steel. He, he fired everybody and he wanted to start over. And Surgical Steel was like next to Icon. They were like the next big fish in a little pond in Phoenix. So, you know, Surgical Steel was, was had that kind of reputation there. I, of course, knew nothing about Phoenix or, or, or any of this. So I was a fish out of water in, in Phoenix. And I started learning the songs. He brings in a drummer. We're rehearsing in a garage. And I can't lock in with this guy. There's just, you know, it's a problem. So I, I said to Jimmy, come in and just listen to us. And he listened and he listened. And I looked at Jimmy. Jimmy looked at me and he nodded. And he had wind up letting this drummer go because the guy's meter was all over the place. And and it was a really nice guy. Looked great. Uh, I, I think he had a drinking problem. So that affected, you know, uh, uh, other things. And so uh, we brought in uh, uh, Randy. Randy. Um, Oh, oh my god i should i should hit myself in the foot for this uh he was a, a drummer for one of the other bands in phoenix great randy randy marchetti great drummer incredible drummer uh and randy came in and did the live shows with us but when it came to the studio uh, uh, uh jimmy had to call his old drummer back in i think it was bob mylan and and to do the track the tracks with us and and i had brought in some material to record as well didn't you record the, uh, Dawkins drummer Mick Brown on one right. track? I was I was getting to that. Yeah, uh, uh, one of the songs I brought in um, was was uh, and it's another side story attached to this song. It was called "We Got Your Rock," um, and, uh, uh, and of course Ace Frehley did it, but we did it in sin. We recorded it too because uh, it was it was done by uh, um, uh, an outside writer. From, he worked with uh, Jay and the Americans. And, and that's where that song originally came from. And it was handed down to, to me through a series of other proxies. Um, and so Mick Brown and George Lynch showed up at the studio. It was uh, El Shatan in Phoenix recording studios. And uh, they said, why don't, Mick, why don't you, we'll, we'll play you the song and you and Rick can play, you know, play it together. And he goes, all right. So he listened to a couple of passes. You know, meanwhile, George is out, <laughs> George is in the lobby <laughs> and you can hear the razor blade on the glass I'm, and I'm, I'm looking at the pile and I'm going, Oh, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting sick to my stomach. Looking what I have, you know, there's this half a Peru on the coffee table. Anyway. So, uh, cause Mick was staying at, at George's place. Sure. And, and, uh, and so 
we got in and, and, and Keela's like, but, 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 and, and, um, uh, our producer, Dan Wexler from Icon, he, he goes, Jimmy, get out of there. Leave him alone. He shuts the door and Mick and I, uh, I, I think we did one pass together and then we hit record and we played as if we came out of the womb locked in gear. Hmm. You know, I mean, it just, it just locked. I locked in with Mick immediately. And then when we were done, he looks at me, he goes, he goes, I don't know why people talk about you. You that you're not that good. He goes, you're just as good as, as, uh, as, uh, uh, Jeff Pilsen. Oh uh, yes. Pilsen. Thank you. He goes, you're just as good as, 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 as uh, Jeff. And I said, wow, that's, that's a high compliment. Thank you. You know, and I, I'm friends with, with Pilsen. We've been friends, you know, for many years like that. And, and so, uh, I, I took that as a very high compliment, you know, from, from, and Mick Brown, I mean, you know, if he, if he's calling it, it must be true, you know? And and that was that was my my uh, my surgical steel story. That was just you know we we. Did you uh, do some live performances with them? With uh, where you guys open for Lita Ford? Right, right. Yeah, uh, it was just we, locally. You didn't tour. You're saying? No, no, we didn't tour. Uh, Jimmy had this huge stage thing built. Uh, the drum riser was aircraft welded aircraft aluminum, and each of the steps had dummy Randall heads in them that all lit up like they were on. It was just a red light. They were all empty. Uh, and I called my my um, my Aunt Randall rep, Bill Acton, at Randall Amps. And I said, we got this huge show where we're supporting Lita Ford. Um, can you get us some backline gear just so we can, you know, fill it up? He goes, yeah. And he brought in. I had like nine base cabinets. Jimmy had, I think, seven stacks, double or triple stacks. You know, I mean, we took up the entire back wall of, of the club. Uh, I think it was Rockers in Phoenix. So we're sound checking, you know, we got there early in the afternoon. We're sound checking. And I, I see a shadow behind me and in, in coming in through the doorway. And I turn around and it's Lita Ford standing there. And her jaw was on the floor. Just silent. She stood there and she's looking up. She's panning up and she's looking at all the wall of amps, the drum riser, the other wall of amps. And she's like, holy shit. She goes, we don't even have gear like this. She goes, could we use your gear? <laughs> wow. With the headliners asking the support, can we use your gear? Like that's, that's that was, interesting. That's and that really was like, funny. That was a year or two or uh, an album or two into her career. Like she was doing very well at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, didn't, didn't you also um, have a connection with Motley Crue? Like you literally lived next door to Nikki six and Tommy Lee when they were in that uh, crappy apartment, the one that they showed in the dirt. Yeah, uh, 1140 North Clark Street. Um, that was a that was a pretty infamous uh, apartment building. Um, the guys from Damals lived in there. They had the apartment facing the pool. Uh, there was a bunch of rocker chicks that lived in there. Uh, what happened was uh, after I received my walking papers from Wasp, I literally had no place to go. You know, I, I didn't know that many people. I, I tried networking with whoever I could, but. You know, we didn't have internet, so there was nobody to check, you know, my resume. Just I could just tell them, you know, I, I worked with Thor. I know the guys in KISS. That, you know, that didn't really get me much. So um, one of the girls that I became friends with that lived in one of those apartments, she was one of the escorts that worked under uh, Heidi Fleiss and, and, uh, and Madame Alex. You know, she, had, she ran a, an escort company she had girls in all, all different parts of la this girl at, at whose apartment it was roxy she felt bad about what happened with me with with wasp 
So she says, you know what? Come and stay at our place until you get on your feet, which is my, my introduction to what they call the couch tour. You know, so she gave me a roof over my head and a place to, to sleep uh, and eat. She had a huge, huge two bedroom apartment. And when the girls would come back in with their money, they, they're looking for places to hide their cash. So I became like this. It was like Jerry Lewis is a houseboy, you know, uh, I, I, I vacuum the carpets. I do the dishes. I do the cleaning. I wasn't just slouching. And, and you know, the girls would come back. Well, I need to hide my money and you hide my money. So I found all these little cubby places in the apartment, peel up the carpet here behind the couch, put something over there. And I would hide their money for them. And we're talking. These girls would come back with wads of money. They, you know, they were escorting like rich, rich Arabs. You know, they were arm candy, essentially, for, for yeah, as escorts. And then they'd come back later and go, where's my money? I need my money. And I'd go back to the spot. And then here's your money. Here's your money. Here's your money like that. So that's what I did. And, and we shared the wall right next door with the apartment that Motley Crue used to live in, who pretty much, Vince had already moved out. He was around the corner on Larrabee with his first wife. Um, Tommy had moved out. Mick would moved out. Uh, but I did see Tommy there at that building before I had even... Uh, uh, moved in. I was just visiting at one point. I met Tommy outside by the elevator, and and we became you know quick friends. Hi, how you doing? Well, I'm from New York. Go, oh yeah, cool, like that. I just got in town. Uh, but Nikki lived there, and and you know the stories about them having the lock broken off from being kicked in so many times. The door that's true. There was no lock on the door. Um, he would push a chair on the inside up against the door to keep it shut, uh, like that. But but uh, he did you get to go here. to any of the parties they had? No, no, not there. I mean, there was parties at the building, but not in their apartment. There was other, you know, the Damals had parties in their apartment. Uh, there was parties in other other uh, uh, apartments in that building. Well, was that but, so? Is that not the apartment from the dirt, like the one that's in the book and the movie that where they were they had all the parties? Is that the same apartment? Or was yeah, that's the same apartment. I, okay, I haven't but seen. They had all I moved seen, out. Yeah, I haven't seen the. I haven't seen the movie. I didn't read the book. Okay, you but, gotta but, see you know, that movie. It's classic. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, Nikki was not doing too well financially yet, and he was running uh, an extension tap from Roxy's apartment. It was a, a, a you know an extension line running around the back patio and into be the sliding door on his side and plug. So he'd have electricity. <laughs> See, he like didn't that. even and, have electricity. No. Wow. And I, I walked in at one point. And he's sitting on the floor with a blanket on him. You know, and it's like guitar picks on the floor and crumpled pieces of paper. It's like, you know, it didn't look like it was it wasn't cleaned like that. But but one day Roxy goes, I need something from Nikki. Can you go go knock on the door? I need to talk to him. I said, sure. So I go over next door and I'm knocking on the door and I, I hear him inside going, yeah. I said, it's Rick from next door. I said, Roxy wants to talk to you. He goes, come on in, dude. So I go to push the door and, you know, there's a chair behind, push the door. And and he had pushed two red had two red leather uh, love seats, and he pushed them together so they formed like a box, like a pit couch, right there, just inside the door on the left. And and he he had come out of that, and and we were talking and talking. He was getting dressed or something. And he said, "Yeah, Roxy wants to talk to you about something." And I seen a blanket move. And I looked over, and and I seen blonde hair just just poking out over the top of the blanket. And then I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't want to interrupt. You got company. And I see the blanket start to come down like this. And I see the eyes and the blonde hair. And I knew immediately just from the eyes who, who it was. And she pulled it. I saw her face. I went, Lita? <laughs> she goes, she goes, hey, dude. Wow. And I said, uh, it was, he was 
you know, dating, shipping Lita Ford at the time. And and uh, I said, I don't know if you remember me. I said, you, you, when you were in the Runaways, you guys played CBGBs. She goes, yeah. I said, that's where we first met after the show. I, I, me and Michael Ma, Michael Monroe, Michael Monroe, uh, Michael from the band Harlow. I said, we were talking, you and Jackie. She goes, that's where you, I know you from. She goes, she remembered, because you know, they looked like Punky Meadows. So she remembered you know, the hair. People remember the end of the look and all. And she so she got out of the blanket thing, and, and she, was, she was partially dressed. And I turned around. But she said, come on, let's go out for breakfast. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm broke. I just, I'm here from New York. I don't have any money, you know, like that. And she goes, don't worry about it, dude. I got it. So she took me and Nikki out to breakfast. So, I mean, there's another pinch me moment. I'm sitting across from Lita Ford. She's buying me breakfast. And me and Nikki Six. She's buying us both breakfast. I mean, you know, it was like, wow, that's one of my first brushes with greatness in L.A. Wow. Did you guys so talk was, a lot about music and the music business and stuff? Or was it just like talking about everyday stuff? Well, that yeah, the local stuff, things like that. You know, uh, the, the scene, what it's like. You know, we didn't talk so much about business from what I can remember. Um, and, and and that was the when I kind of first started really bonding with Nikki. Because years later, when I when I had sin, and and uh, um, he would come by the apartment that I was staying at, and we just sit outside on, on the hood of somebody's car on Lancashire Boulevard. There was a huge liquor store called uh, Jumbo Circus or something, and Nicky used to get his liquor from there. And we'd sit on a, on the hood of somebody's car, just like we do in New York, and we'd sit there just drinking a beer and just talking about this, that, and the other. And and Nicky was telling me about the business and what was happening with him and everything. At, uh when when uh, Shout Out to Devil came out, or right before it came out, he called me up. He had my number. Uh, and he said, listen, uh, we got a bigger budget for more gear and, and everything. So I'm getting rid of my old stuff. Uh, I have some of my amps out at SIR in Hollywood. And and if you want it, go get it. It's yours. I said, seriously? He says, dude, he goes, you know, you're a cool guy. And, and I know you probably need it. So, you know, you can have my gear. And, and oh. I checked with SIR, and I said, yeah, uh, I got a ride. I went down there, and it was his old V4B cabinets that he used when he was in Motley Crue. I mean, you know, the, the, the Too Fast for Love era. Those were his amps he always played, you know, uh, uh, in the club whiskey and, and Starwood and all that. And I, I and the guy walked, I said, uh, Rick Fox. And he goes, okay, yeah. He goes, uh, Nicky called. He goes, you can grab that cabinet and that head right there. He goes, that's yours. And the other cabinet went to somebody else. Like that. So Nikki, of all the people in LA, he didn't have to do that. You know, he gave me he gave me an amp, he gave me the amp head. Uh later on, I was over his he had me come over his apartment on Coldwater, and he gave me the red red leather uh, uh stiletto thigh high boots that he wore. And in one of the videos, he used to light them on fire. He gave me those, he gave me some shirts, some belts. Do you still have I, all that stuff? I have the boots. I, I still have the boots. Um, they're not red leather anymore. <laughs> um, I, I was an extra in one of the movies I was in and it was a, a B, a, a club scene with like a, a B and D S and M club. Everybody was wearing black. So I wrapped the boots in black, uh, uh, gaffer's tape. And then when I went to peel the tape off, it started to take the leather with it. I went, Oh, I just oh, painted no. myself into a corner. Oh. You know, it says Nikki six in the boots, you know, he wrote on oh. him in, in pen, but you know, if you peel it carefully, you can see it's still red leather under the tape. But yeah, I, I still have them. They're they're here, like that. Uh, but I haven't that's talked to Nick Nikki in years. Yeah, that's really cool. So why do you think when you look back on your career? Because I mean, you, you know, you were in Wasp for a little bit. You made the Steeler album. You know, Surgical Steel. All these other 
uh, projects, sin, like three versions of sin and some other things that you've done, spiders and snakes and all this. Like, why do you think a guy like Nicky, Nicky six makes it so big? And, and you didn't, because I mean, as you, as even Mick Brown said, like you can play just as good as Jeff Pilsen. So you had the chops, you had the look. I mean, it sounds like you had the networking, you had all these connections. What do you think happened? You know, let me put it this way. Uh, one of the, the first nights that when I first got to L.A. and I was staying at Blackie's house, uh, you know, there was still a little bit of jet lag. We didn't just jump right into the audition process. So he took me out. We went to the Troubadour. And I walk in, and in and, and the lobby right there standing is Kevin DeBro. I recognized him because I had the Japanese copies of Quiet Riot back in my apartment in Jersey. Those, those two imports, Randy Rhodes on them, Gritty Rhodes and, and, and Rudy. Uh, like that. So I went up, we, we started talking and I said, uh, Rick Fox, I just got in from New York and I said, I'm going to audition for Blackie's band. Blackie already had a reputation. Everybody knew who he was. He was already damaged goods. <laughs> uh, but the thing that Kevin told me was be careful. Just like the song, uh, uh, the backstabbers by the OJs. He goes, that's LA. There's always somebody that wants your gig. Don't trust anyone. Don't believe anything that anyone tells you. He goes, because there'll, there'll always be somebody Wait right behind you for your gig. And if they can they can find a way to push you out of it, they will. That's L.A. It's very competitive. It's very uh, um, sandbox. It's, it's like the little rascal sandbox drama. And I've run into that so many times over the years. Being from New York, I, I was kind of an outsider. So I didn't have that L.A. mentality. So I didn't tolerate the drama and the BS and any of the stuff that's affiliated with that. and and. I guess just out of necessity, I had to develop a little bit more of an assertive, not aggressive, but an assertive confidence of the personality. And some people find that threatening for some reason. They perceive a territorial threat or something if you're confident in yourself. And and so people talk, people say things behind your back. Uh, you know, I witnessed it myself. I was at the Troubadour one night and one of the, the bigger local bands that went on to become huge to this day, watching another band on stage. And I'm standing there and I hear them all mocking this band on stage, cracking jokes at their expense. And this guy sucks. And look what he's doing. And that guy's a joke. This, <coughs> excuse me. And then after the show, I knew the guys in the band that was on stage. We were up in the dressing room and there's the same guys in that band going, Hey, you were great. Oh yeah. You guys kicked ass. And I saw it for myself firsthand. The, the BS, the drama, the backstabbing, the the you know the the talking out of both sides of your mouth, you know, like that, and I thought that's what this town is made of, and you have to grow a veneer, some kind of protective coating, to 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 not tolerate that, and if you're lucky enough to work yourself into a position, I don't want to say of authority, but if you're in a band that becomes uh, like a headliner. Uh, it's either going to happen more or less. And, and you know, there's always somebody that wants your gig. The guy, my guys in my band in Sin came to me, my second lineup, and said, people are talking. They're trying to get us to leave, kick you out or, or leave working with you and come play with them in their band. My guys at least had the, the professional courtesy to tell me that this was going on. So I, I knew it to be a fact like that. And it's just like Kevin DeBro said, people will do They'll manipulate whatever they can do to get you out of where you're at because they, they desire your, your position like that. And, and, you know, uh, I, I get ribbed a lot about my, you know, the hairstyle I had, I looked like 
Punky Meadows at that time. You know, I, I, I'll be honest. I copied his hairstyle back in New York before I even came to L.A. And uh, the the hair cutter, the rock and roll hair cutter I went to, uh guy named Hurley Ree uh, from Hair Pirates out by Pasadena. Um, he was the guy who was cutting my hair. He knew how to do that cut, you know, and and he had my, the band picture on the wall. He says, you know, Rick, you've bought me a lot of business. And I said, what did I do? He goes, every guy, all these guys in the bands come in. He goes, they go right to your picture. They point to you and I go, cut my hair like that guy. So they, he says, I've been cutting all of these guys' hair that in your hairstyle. And a lot of these are the same guys that are out talking crap about me. You know, so this is the kind of what, what, I, what I had to go through. This is L.A. It's, it's a, it was another planet. You know, in New York, we didn't have that kind of mentality. There was a little bit of competitiveness, but it was more larger uh, a scope of a family. We were all in this together. In L.A., it was every man for himself. So I kind of had to adapt to that. You see? That's really interesting. And, the, and, you the, know, two scenes uh, were so different. Well, I was I happened to be watching one of your interviews last night. It was up till 430 in the morning. Watching your interview with Don Dawkin. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it was great. I, I, I listened, watched the whole, and I think some of what I'm saying Don validated by when he was talking about the LA scene and what people were like. You know, so it was there. It was evident, and and, and some guys just lay low. They're quiet. Uh, they know how to navigate and be be happy friends with everybody. Say something nice and good about everybody. And they get gigs and they go from place to, you know, Rudy Saws was a great bass player. He's I was going to say, everybody. that's a great example. He's in, he's been in, so he's White Snake, Quiet Riot. Uh, I mean, he's been in so many different projects. Lord's the Cult, Queen's Right, this band, yeah. that band. He's one of those guys that's, uh, he's a great diplomat. And and he doesn't, uh, um, he doesn't give off any type of uh, a perceived threat, territorial or otherwise. He's, he's very amiable, nice guy, soft-spoken. And and he does the talking with his playing. Um, so he's yeah, one of those like, guys. That, yeah, it, it kind of reminds me too. I think you mentioned this in an interview. Uh, the Don Costa guy who joined Wasp af after you, he was kicked out of Wasp and Ozzy for almost like overshadowing, right? Because he played his uh, bass with a cheese grater or something like that. Or what was the? What did yeah, he do? He, he had some stunt that like got took out too much attention from the frontman. Uh, he he would upstage whatever bands he was in now. To go back, uh, Mark Kendall from Quiet, from uh, White, White, uh, Great White, had played with with Don, you know, with yeah. Dante Fox before Wasp. Yeah. And originally, he said Donnie never moved; he just kind of stood there. He was a really good bass player, but there was no charisma on stage. And he's like, "Move, move, get out of the shell, move a little bit more." And Donnie came out of his shell, but he became this wild man on stage. And I don't remember where the idea came from the from the cheese grater. And of course, this is the days before AIDS and and and, uh, and HIV and all that stuff. And and he would scrape his knuckles on the on the cheese grater, and he'd hold it out, and the girls would lick the blood off his knuckles. Yeah, I mean, that's nice. Like, yeah, yikes! Exactly. But this is everybody was looking for the next angle to shock the audience. I mean, you know, when Blackie was in Sister. He was eating bronco worms on stage. And I said, what's a bronco worm? He said, they're like real big earthworms. They're, they're really, really long. They're about as thick as your finger. And when you touch them, they, they wriggle, they move around. So he had a, a black box on the drum wires and it said bait written on it. And he would come out with it and he, he, the band would be playing and he'd pull one out of the box and hold it up. The whole audience could see this worm wriggling around and he'd open his mouth and he'd swallow it right down his throat. And that would shock people because who the yeah. hell eats worms? 
So is some of this uh, calculated? Because I heard you talking about the manager from WASP, this guy, what was his name? Mike Solon or something like that, that he had books like from uh, Goebbels and all these Nazis about how to use propaganda and stuff. No, 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 no. That's that's a little bit mixed up. Uh, The guy that was managing them when I came in, his name was uh, Mike Forney. Okay. Who was the guy that had the Nazi books? That was Blackie. Oh, Blackie had that. Okay. Yes. When you walk into his house, he had this little cottage, a rental cottage, and it had the walls went up like this and curved at the top at the ceiling and came back down. So it was kind of like half of a tunnel. And he had a, a little loft up uh, some ladder would go up to a, a loft on one side that he would sleep in. He crawled through that window and that was his loft. But to the right, immediately to your left, alongside the wall, he had this little bookcase. So he was he was a reader like myself. And I was like, what's his you got books? What's his books about Nazis? Like that. And he was telling me about Goebbels and and, and Hitler's press guys. And he said that he, that's where I first heard the, the saying that uh, um the bigger the lie the more people are going to believe it, the more outrageous it is, because it's it's too outrageous not to believe it. Hmm. And that's what they were using to promote Hitler back at the time. So he was taking this, this mindset of, of being so outrageous, it was just too absolutely off the off the wall to not believe it. And and of course he used that when when he kicked me out of the band, you know, to 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 uh, dismiss the fact that I was ever in the band. So he was that was his big lie. Like that, but he was he was using some of that that mindset and applying it because we would sit up for hours. You know, he's on one end of the room, sitting on the other, and and we talk for hours about this stuff. And he was from New York, I'm from New York, so you know there was a little bit of commonality on that. And you know, and he used to, he was a nice guy, you know, like that. And and like I said, he would uh, a certain time of the month, he would say, "Close all the windows, close all the blinds. Like nobody lives here. Don't answer the door. Nothing." And what he would do back then is is uh, before the utility companies got hip to it, you used to be able to screw off the, the glass bezel off the uh, the electric meter because they didn't have a collar on them then. And he would he would he would set the numbers back to what it was the previous month. He, I said, "What did you learn that from?" He goes, one, "He goes one of the books in my my shelf. It's called Steal This Book. It was by Abby Hoffman, who was a counterculture hippie guy." And he said, this is what he used to do. He would, he would unscrew that, put the numbers back and put the glass bezel back on. And then, you know, of course, that time of the month, here comes the, the, you know, the meter reader. And he's, he's reading the meter and it's like, well, that doesn't add up because back at the office, this shows his power being used, but here the numbers are back to where they were, you know, now. I so a pretty smart to... guy and maybe not the most, most ethical well, person, but, but, but he read a lot and he knew how to get things moving. He was also very broke. You know, he was living yeah, hand to mouth. Sure. You know, he would make fog machines and, and uh, stage monitors and sell them through the, you know, the, uh, the local newspaper like that. And, and I had a day job set up waiting for me that was planned from New York. There was a, a company, it was a marketing research company I worked for in New York. They had a satellite company in Century City, in California, in, in L.A. And they arranged for me to, to be able to go uh, transfer from New York to, to L.A. The office manager called, set it up. She goes, we have one of our people transferring to L.A., uh, you know, have a job there for him. And when I got up there, they said, we, we don't have anything open. We can't just create an opening. You're going to have to wait until, until we have the opening. You know, we can't just let somebody go and put you in. So I, there goes my day job. There goes my survival. There goes my, my income. So I was starving right alongside Blackie. And now to, for him to have to split whatever little money he made with me 
you know, it didn't sit that right with him, but he saw me as an investment because, you know, uh, once I got the gig, you know, I did the audition with them and I got the gig, you know, he was real happy about that, but now I'm, I'm staying at his apartment. So I wasn't able to survive myself because if I did, I've been able to find my own apartment, have my own money. I might've been a little bit more valuable to the band, you know, as far as at least uh, having some money in my pocket, I'm, I'm speculating like that, but uh, it was the first time that I had to experience what it was like to be without money and without uh, food, you know, and, and uh, uh, we would go out to the, to the grocery store around the corner and he would buy a little container of orange juice or chocolate milk and, and uh, uh, cookies. And I found myself, but I'm, I'm ashamed that I did it, but I would steal like a package of cheese, like individual slices of cheese, you know, and just so I'd have something to eat. And then uh, the kids that gave originally gave my number to Blackie in New York. Well, they came to New York and they got my number and they, they would come up to the house sometimes during the daytime and we'd walk down to the middle of Hollywood and the kid, one kid would pull a couple of dollars out of his bank account and they'd take me out and get me a burger, you know, or there was a place on Santa Monica, famous uh, Santa Monica Boulevard called Okie Dogs. That was where all the runaways hung out, not the band. I mean, the actual kids you know, like that. It was, it was a, a, a congregational corner. All these street people would hang out and they served these big paper bags full of French fries that were just loaded with salt. And, and so we'd eat, we'd eat okie dogs like that and hot dogs or whatever. And that was kind of how I survived uh, until I got into a better position. So uh, it was hand to mouth, you know. And and, and so uh, uh, Blackie had said, this is going to be a new band. We need a new name. We need a new theme. I don't want to do what, anything that I used to do. And he's like just kind of fretting about what are we going to, what's this new band going to be? Now that you're in it, what are we going to do? What, what are we going to call it? Like that. I'm not going to call it Sister anymore. You had White Sister, which was a big LA band. You had Twisted Sister on the East Coast. There's too many bands with Sister in it. So that's what I, I was. Uh, uh, I got a phone call from a friend in New York. I took his phone outside, a really long extension cord, and I was just walking around the courtyard kicking over leaves. And that's when I, I, I stepped on a, uh, I saw a, a yellow jacket on the ground because, you know, they go after you drop off a soda or sweets or anything. They're scavengers. So I stepped on it. And I turned the leaf over and it didn't quite kill it right away. It was, it was the tail. The stinger was still moving. It was squirming. And it reminded me of the old green Hornet logo from the green Hornet TV series that ran opposite Batman. And I went back in the house and I said, I got an idea for a band name. So he's sitting there like this. He had this orange crushed velvet love seat and he's, he's sinking it like this. And he's watching the Yankee game and he had the door open. And I walk, I said, and he goes, I says, what? Like that. And I said, Wasp. I said, I just stepped on one outside. I said, wouldn't it be a killer name for a band? And he looks up at the ceiling and he's thinking and he's thinking. He says, that's a good idea. He goes, that's a great idea. He goes, keep thinking like that. And that was the last of it. He went back to watching the ball game. A couple of nights later, we're at Randy's rehearsal studio down in Anaheim. And we finished rehearsing. And we called a band meeting. So it's me, Tony, Randy, and Blackie. And he says, we got a new band name. So Tony goes, what is it? And Randy goes, well, I wanted to call it Hellion because that's what they call bad kids in Texas where he's from. I said, I think there's already a band in Hollywood called Hellion. So Tony goes, what's the name? Blackie goes, Wasp. So Tony goes, Wasp? Who names a band after a bug? And I, I said, the Beatles? Scorpions? You know, like that. It's, it's not uncommon. Uncom and, and at that moment, 
that makes all four of us co-founders of the new band. You know, uh, it's it's where we are now was. So the be that's and what Randy it has, uh, has validated you on this, right? Yes, on, on uh, Full and Blue Music, he did an interview, and and they asked him, so was Rick really in the band, and did he come up with the name Wasp? Randy goes, yeah, I I, I uh, I'm going to join you with my black cup. <laughs> nice. I, I'm my black cup. My my lip service cup. Uh, uh he goes, yeah. He goes, uh, I'm not going to take that away from him. Rick did come up with the name. He goes, Blackie stole it. He put the periods in it, like that. And and uh, and yeah, he goes, Rick was in the big. Goes, Randy's non-confrontational. You know, you, you, if you try to corner him to get a specific answer, he'll try and go, well, you know, I don't remember. I'm not sure. It was this or it was that or something like that. You know. Uh, and, and so he said, yeah, Rick, he goes, I don't know why it didn't work out. I don't know the studio or something. I don't know. He goes, we tried a lot of guys out like that. So, and come to find out later before me, they actually, Blackie actually approached Don Costa that he wanted Donnie in the band and Donnie kept going, no, no, I don't want to play with you like that. So, so he turned him down. Blackie got handed my phone number and then he called me. We talked, they flew me out to LA. You, you invoked the name earlier, Mike Solon. Mike Solon was a friend of Blackie's. He was the guy that, kept dro that drove us to rehearsal all the time. Oh, okay. He was, but, sorry. Yeah, can... Blackie's, Blackie's car wasn't working. It, it needed some work, and he'd have the money to get it fixed. Uh, for, for trivia people, Mike Solon is the bartender in, in, the, in the video, Blind in Texas. When they walk okay. in, and they go, we're, we're here to do a gig. And he goes, what's a gig? Like that. And he takes the shot glass and pours it out, and it, it, it's acid burns on the bar. Mixed with, that's Mike Solon. Okay. So, so Mike is the brother of Eddie Solon. Eddie Solon was Ace Frehley's guitar tech and first sound man for Kiss when they were first starting out. So there's the dot connection right there. And when, when Kiss would tour and they were in on the West Coast, when they had a day off, a, uh, a Blackie would hang out with Ace Frehley. And he told me this story where their, Ace was sitting around a hotel. They were at the, he sat at the riot on Sunset, where they used to have a lot of rock bands and parties and whatnot. He said Ace was bored. So he, he he says, we went to a toy store. He bought like a whole box load of these little plastic green army men that were had parachutes on them. You know, you throw it up in the air and it would, it would parachute down. He says he had like a hundred of these things in a box. And he went up, so he goes up to the to the railing. He was like an you know, upper floor, the top floor. And Ace tosses this box with all these little toy parachute soldiers off the balcony. And it's like a hundreds of these little parachute guys. <laughs> coming down on Sunset Boulevard in the traffic in between the cars. This is the, the funniest thing. It was a really funny story. That's like something I could see Ace doing. That, that, that is funny. That is, that's, yeah, like that. so you have that, a lot of connections and stories like that. Didn't so and then because you also tried out for Rat and uh what the Greg Leon invasion who Greg Leon if people don't know was in a band with Tommy Lee. He was not technically he says he was not in Motley Crue ever but he was in a band band with Tommy Lee and they were trying to form something and it didn't yeah. work out, but you, you tried out for his new band and Steven and, and rap. Well, here's, here's another tie into your interview with Don. Greg was the original guitar player in Dokken. Was he? Yes. Oh, okay. Wow. He was a big, he was the original. I've seen the picture of it. I've, okay. I've seen, I've seen Greg's interviews. He, there's a picture of him and Don and the other two guys. So he was in Dokken, you know, an original one of the, at least one of the early lineups. Mm. of Dokken. I don't know if it was before or after Don went to Germany. But but Greg had played with Don Dokken as well. So I um 
I, I think I saw Greg Leon play at the Troubadour or something. Walls of Marshall Sachs. He's one of the loudest bands you ever saw. And and I somehow I, I contacted him and I auditioned for him uh, and I didn't get the gig. And then uh, I, I when I had moved out of Roxy's apartment, uh, I had a, I moved in with some someone else had an apartment. Uh, anybody who knows where Cantor's Deli is in, in Hollywood, it's a big Jewish deli we used to eat at all the time. I lived right around the corner from there at this apartment on the first floor. And in order to network, to meet musicians, we'd have like rock and roll barbecues out on the sidewalk. Because our apartment just walked, you know, we were first floor right there. And and so we had this bar and we would go around the clubs and we would invite all these guys from these bands to come hang out with us. We'd have rock and you know, hot dogs and hamburgers and whatnot. And this way I got to meet various guys and bands and network and talk to them and say, well, you know, I was in Wasp. I, was, I, knew, I worked with Thor and Kiss and blah, 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 blah. And the guys from Rat, show, Steve Piercy was there. Uh, I forget who else, a couple of the other guys. And we couldn't get the, the, the charcoal to ignite. And I threw like half a can of, of, of uh, the barbecue, the fluid on it. And it nuked. It made it like a big, big nuclear cloud. <laughs> a flame went all the way up in the sky. Everybody backed up and went, oh, this guy's nuts. <laughs> no, were these not the these weren't the the backyard barbecues that the Guns and Roses guys used to hang out? This at. is this is way long before that. Okay, you before know, them. Okay, way long before that. We're talking. This is 1982, summer of 82. Okay, like that. So uh, uh, Stephen invited me to come audition for the for Rat, uh, and we were in his um, his grandmother's garage in Culver City. Blotzer was on drums. Um, uh, uh, um, Robin. Was there Robin Crosby? I think I think Warren was in the band at the time, and they had given me a cassette tape of the songs, but there was no lyrics on it. There was there was no no singing. It was just just like like a, a like a demo without the, without the vocals, and I I, I still have it to this day. Um, and I, I learned the songs as best as I could, and I was playing. And Blotzer and I were not hitting it off really well. Um, I, I I was playing an Ibanez. Uh, destroyer bass. It's like looks like an explorer. Uh, one of the original Karina Wood bases. And I had put these little silver prism stars on the fret markers. And Blaser was like, he, he just decided to, to pick on me about that. And he goes, hey man, those disco stars, they gotta go. All right. That's just that's just lame. That's corny, man. And besides, he goes, I like a bass player plays with his fingers. I go play with the fingers, feel, feel. I said, look, you know, here's my New York coming out. I said, I don't tell you what kind of sticks to use. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't tell you how to use your sticks. I don't tell you what kind of drum heads you use. I play with a pick at that point. I play with a pick. He goes, well, real bass players play with their fingers. I said, oh, like uh, Paul McCartney, Gene Simmons, Tom Hamilton. Well, Tom plays with both his fingers and pick. Uh, I started uh, Pete Way, pick and fingers. I said, you know, there's, there's great guys that, that use picks, too. It depends on, on the feel, the attack of the song. So Blotzer didn't like that. I mean, we later we became friends. But, so uh, when I got the, the gig with Steeler and our first debut for me and mom's team was at the country club in Reseda. And uh, uh, at the after the show was over, I was in one of the dressing rooms. I'm wiping my bass down. I see the guys from Rat come walking by, you know, going to whatever the green room was. And Blotzer looked at me, stopped, he backed up. He looked at me again through the doorway. He guess he didn't put two and two together. I said, not bad for disco stars, huh? And then he re remembered, this is the guy that came and auditioned, and he just got real red in the face and, and took off. I busted up laughing. 
so it was just uh, it was just nice nice to have that little little dig right back at him. So yeah, that's funny. So like, how did you? How long were you in Steeler for? Because like, I know that the, Melmstein has a reputation that he's difficult to work with or whatever. But I mean, you were able to work with him for a extended a, per- a period of time, right? Uh, well, for as long as uh, he, as long as we were in the band together, uh, it was late summer of '82. I think I had already spent a couple of months rehearsing with Warlord, uh, and, and and they were never planning on doing any live gigs. And I said, I, I said, I wish you would have told me that when I when I first walked in the door. Uh, you know, I spent several months rehearsing with them. And they were they had no plans to play live. It was going to be just a recording project. I said, "Well, guys, I'm a live player, so I'm, I'm going to have to say thank you and good night." I put an ad in Music Connection magazine, and Ron's Keel saw the ad. Now I had already seen Steeler once at the Roxy. Uh, I was there with Eric Carr, and and this was Ron's original lineup from Nashville, and they were good good band, hard rocking. Or I could tell right away Ron was Ron was going to be a big star. He had that kind of, uh, of of superstar charisma. He was a, definitely a, a, the pro guy. Uh, not to anything against you. The other guys are good good players. Bass player didn't move. He just did one spot. Kind of like you know a bass player in Judas Priest. Guitar player walked a little bit back and forth. Mike Dunnigan. He's a good guitar player. Uh, but the way it was told to me, they had just showcased for every label in L.A. And every label turned them down. So... Ross said, I, I need something that can compete with Rat, Black and Blue, Motley Crue. I, I need something that next level up. He goes, people have mentioned your name. They, they talked about how you look and everything. So he saw my ad. He called me up. We talked. And I, I went down to meet him at what we call the Steeler Mansion, which was you know three gutted storefronts infested with roaches. That's why we call it the mansion, because it was everything but a mansion. <clears throat> and and it was a common room with you know and and no furniture. The only thing was like the the main support parts that were keeping the you know the it was like a wall, a room, a wall, a room like that. And I walked in and I, I in the rehearsal room and I was like walking around. I go, Where's the gear? I mean, these guys are self-contained. They had a truck, they had lights, PA, everything, road crew. There was nothing there. It was just a drum riser. And Ron says, I, I fired the whole band. That's going to that's gonna echo ahead to Surgical Steel. What happened? I fired the whole band. Uh, kind of a thing like that. And and so there went the truck, the lights, the gear, everything went. And, and Ron said, I saw your ad. Uh, people mentioned your name and, and said you had this look. I, I, wasn't, I didn't like, dude myself up when I walked in there. It wasn't like I was going on stage. You know, I was in jeans and like that. And, casual but i had the hair and everything. so so he says uh he's he got a really good look I, I want guys that look like they're already signed and on the road that that kind of level and you have that look so i said so what can i do for you and he goes here's a tape learn the songs no promises come back and, and we'll see what happens from there i said all right fair enough so i took the songs back to the apartment i was living at i learned like five or six songs like that i went back uh, some days later, and, just, and we sat down, just Ron and I. He sat on a riser. I sat on a, a milk crate or something, and we just played the songs you know, uh, to each other. I think I had a little little pig nose practice amp. I, I don't remember what he had. He might have had a, 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 an amp. And we just talked, and we played, and we talked, and we played. And Ron was a big Kiss fan, 
So, you know, I told him about my relation with Early Kiss, and I was there watching them before Ace Frehley was in the band. Um, I knew Sean Delaney, who taught Kiss all of their moves, their choreography, the breathing, the fu- and all of that stuff. Uh, so I was, and, and Ron dug that. So, you know, it's somebody, wow, who, who actually personally was there when with Kiss from the very beginning, before they were Kiss. So uh, that's kind of where it was at. And and he had uh, his his new drummer Mark Edwards was in Texas. He was visiting his family. He goes, well, Mark's going to be coming back in a few days. We'll pick him up from the airport, and then we'll we'll he'll, he got his drums out of storage, and he set him up on riser. And and Mark was not uh, very open yet to me. Uh, he was pretty much just to himself. He was quiet, and I, I get that because you know if you're too friendly with somebody and it doesn't work out, you don't want the f- bad feelings or anything like that. So. I got that too. Uh, so Mark was a man of few words and uh, he was like a, like a, a younger version of Tommy Aldridge Had the same kind of haircut and, you know, playing in gym shorts like Tommy does uh, like that. So he set up his drums and we, we started to play the songs and it sounded good. It felt good. Uh, there were some things that, that Mark uh, worked up with me on, uh, you know, to which I'm indebted to him. He taught me, but taught me the, the value of listening to what the drummer is saying and when to anticipate what the drummer is going to say and how he's going to say it. And here's the meter. Here's a head. Here's a, I had just come from playing six nights a week, four sets a night from Jersey, you know, months before that. I, I wasn't really, I, not, I didn't really have a meter problem, but it was not something that was on the top of my, my priority. Like I was playing, you know, we played everything from Joe Jackson to Judas Priest, the Doors, the Who, Zeppelin. So I was just playing what was on records. So now I'm, I'm still playing somebody else's material, but I'm playing with the guys that are actually like in the writing of it like that. So uh, Mark and I worked really tight. Uh, we worked out a lot of little accents and kicks and stops and things like that. Uh, you know, cute things between the bass and the drums as a rhythm section. So we got really tight. I like to say we're so tight. You couldn't slip a piece of paper in between us, you know, uh, uh, we're so in the po- in your pie in the pocket, you wouldn't even know your change was gone, uh, <laughs> like that. And then, so we got really tight. Uh, Ron was already in touch with Mike Varney, and and uh, said, you know, we called him up and he said, we're, we're ready. We we need a guitar player from hell. But little did I know that, that was going to prove itself as a prophecy, because that's exactly what we got as a guitar player from hell. Um, we did a a, a three way conversation with Momstein in Sweden. And Varney and us. We were in L.A. Varney was up in the Bay Area. And and uh, Mom scene sounded like real gung-ho. Yeah, I want to come out there. I want to play with your band and yeah, come to America. We're going to rock and like that. And we heard his tape. We were sitting there we're like, wow. The only thing we could compare that to at that time was Eddie Van Halen. You know, it was like the, sure. maybe Warren DeMartini and George Lynch were kind of all in that school. The sweeping arpeggios, the hammer-ons and all that stuff. So, uh, uh we made the arrangement, and, and Mom C flew to America. We went to LAX to pick him up. And it seemed like the guy we talked to on the phone was not the same guy that came down the ramp off, off the plane. <laughs> I mean, you know, this hair swing and the Vikings here and, you know, all the, the, the uh, occult jewelry and, and stuff. I mean, I'll make no mistake, and I used to wear that stuff too. But uh, I think Mom C was, like, really into it, like a shock value thing or something. He was 19. You know, he was a kid like that. I was the oldest guy in Steeler. I was 27. Um, like that, and, and so you know, Momstein walks into the. It was it was the it was the shock value. He thought he was going to walk into a nice house, 
everybody was living comfortably like that, you know, and he walked in and he saw this gutted building with roaches everywhere. And <laughs> it was, it was definitely a right. culture shock from what he was ex- expecting when he, you know, coming from Sweden, they were, you know, different living style there. So uh, we, we started to get to work and we started working, you know, going over the songs, going over the songs. At one point uh, uh, we stopped playing and, and uh, Ingrid says to Ron, Hey man, is there something you could do to make these songs a little bit more interesting? Because they're really quite fucking boring. And it was that moment, that that quiet anxiety moment in the room. It's just got the air got really heavy, the way I, I interpret it. And I looked up at Mark on the drum riser, and he looked down at me, and he just shook his head, and he looked up at the ceiling, rolled his eyes, and I'm thinking, did did new guy just say what I thought he said? It just insulted the boss's songs. He told Ron to his face, "Your songs are fucking boring." Uh, and and Ron did the quickest. Uh, if you know about uh, uh, in the acting business, what a slow burn is. Uh, ben Turpin used to do it. They used to do it a lot in the Little Rascals when an adult would get really mad, and he just mm, his face would get real red. That Ron did the fastest slow burn I ever saw, and he just stood there like stunned. And he goes, all right, all right, cool, all right. Uh, and the next day, we started auditioning other guitar players. <laughs> in well, front Mousy of him, was, right? Like right in front of his face? Right. He was, well, Mousy was staying with us. He was in uh, one of the further rooms away. Like, he was in the kitchen area where the waterbed was and all more of the roaches. And he had to hear us audition with another guy and another guy and another guy and another guy. And nobody was hitting it. They were, they were, nobody was getting close to the mark like that. And finally, when uh, one guy, the last guy left, Ingrid comes back out. He goes, "All right, all right, all right. I'll, I'll play the game. Let's let's just do this like that." And we settled down, and we got to work. And and that was see, I I was I got the official word that I was in Steeler on my birthday in 1982. It was December 28th, 1982. We're at the Rainbow. Ron said, "Congratulations, you're in the band. You're the new bass player." I said, "Okay, great." So that was the three. Ingrid didn't come in until. I want to say February, almost a year to the day when I first arrived. He came in February of 83. So I, I had already been with Steeler for a couple of months, you know, already working with them. Uh, Ingve came in. And once we settled down and got past the, you know, the, the, the monkey bars and, the, and the, 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 the schoolyard stuff, we got really, 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 the, the four of us, incredibly tight like that. You know, and when we weren't playing Steeler stuff, I would jam with Ingve on like Scorpion songs and, Deep Purple song, because he loved Richie Blackmore. He loved Uli Roth. So I knew that stuff from playing in Jersey. So we played, you know, Deep Purple and Scorpion songs like that. And when he wasn't wearing the guitar, which wasn't very often, he seemed okay. He was, he was like, you know, uh, like a kid at a toy store. You know, we'd go out to the beach. We'd go out to here. We'd go out to eat. We'd go, you know, and he was a regular person. But when that guitar came on, he was like, you know, Mozart. He was, he was the, uh, he wanted to call all the shots and how the music was arranged like that. And and so uh, uh, we we found out within that month that our first show was going to be March 11th. It was like like almost around the corner. So we we really knuckled down, you know, got, got to business, and and uh, they didn't have clothes, stage clothes. I I had stage clothes. I had some stuff sent out from from my dad. Sent me out some of my stuff from New York. So you know, I gave him spandex shirts to wear, spandex pants, and some jewelry. And, uh, uh, you know, here's here's a leather jacket. Here's this. Here's that. 
you know, so I, I had extra gear that I, you know, like Nikki shared with me later on, I shared with them like that in that spirit. And so, uh, um, uh, um, and, you know, the first show was like, everybody was like, well, my God, where are these guys? Who, where does, who, you know, people had seen me around, but they didn't put two and two together until now. That was my debut uh, with, with Bombstein and they didn't know where to look. There's the, there's the bass player and all this black leather. And here's this, uh, this guitar player is like on fire. He's doing all these Blackmore moves, and like people are like, "Oh, wow!" You know. So we we uh, we moved up the ladder pretty quickly, I guess. You know, and we played with Vandenberg, the Roxy. Uh, we we supported Quiet Riot at Perkins Palace right as Metal Health hit number one in Billboard. So it was an incredible moment. Uh, we we were lucky. We got the we got the openings or the support slot for Quiet Riot at Perkins Palace. It was it was several times beyond capacity. It was like it was like a sweaty gymnasium, just to walk into the into the uh, the theater, like that. And we did well. We did really we received really well. I already knew Frankie and 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 uh, and Rudy and Kevin, you know. And as as an, ed, an opener, it's like this unwritten. You don't always mingle with the headliner. You don't go by their dressing room kind of a thing. As me downstairs, you know, I walked over to their dressing room and I said hi to Frankie and hi to Rudy and. I had a Kevin and they're shaking my hand. Ron's like, what are you doing? Don't, don't go down here. They're the headliner. You're just supposed to talk to them. And they all turn around. I'm like, we're friends. We know each other. It's okay. Relax. <laughs> Lighten up, Francis. You know, like that. And so, uh, yeah, so being, you know, congratulating me. It's not, you finally hit it. You're this band, one of the biggest cornerstone metal bands of LA. So it was, it was, uh, it was a great feeling. You know, we were doing really well. And, and uh, until, Momstein decided to leave, you know, and looking back, it was inevitable. We were just, we were, we were the, the jumping off point for him. Yeah. You know, we, we were, we were his, uh, his sandwich board, uh, uh, so to speak, you know, people who don't know what that is back in the twenties and thirties, you'd have a guy walking around back and forth in front of a, a, a restaurant and he'd have his wooden board on the front bed. We'd talk what we know, what we have for, uh, what we're eating today, what's on the menu, a sandwich board. Like that. And, and so that was, Momstein used us as his calling card once he was in America. And he was starting to already look around and he talked to Phil Moog. He talked from UFO. Uh, he, he apparently got the gig with, uh, with uh, Alcatraz like that. Yeah. And, and so that was it. You know, I laughed at our last show together. The next day, he was, he was already gone. It was, huh. We were supposed to have a band meeting. It was just me and Mark there. Ron wasn't there. Momstein wasn't there. Mark says, Ron's, Ron's uh, dissolving the lineup. He's, he's starting over like that. I said, well, what did I do? He goes, nothing. He goes, we're just starting over. So uh, I said, are you still in the band? He goes, yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> and and <laughs> Weird. No, well, that's what I was. I was at a Steeler. That's when I decided to put Sin, another lineup of Sin together. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, and then you had some other projects that uh, didn't pan out, but you had, you had some other really cool experiences. I don't think I've heard you talk about this. Um, but I saw this on your Wikipedia that you played uh, with Sam Kinison, the comedian, because he had that song, The Wild Thing. You, you performed thing. that live? Yeah. Uh, uh, what happened was, this is now, uh, I'm going to say 1988. Yeah. I got it right um, there. <laughs> uh, uh, Kenny Rubin, uh, who was, uh, he was a mainstay at the Rainbow. He had a, uh, he, he was like a manager for a lot of artists. And so, and he handled all of the advertising accounts for the rainbow and the Roxy for all the billboards. And he got all those, he had the range have whatever the artwork was on all of those billboards amongst other things. And Kenny was a real mover and shaker in the, in the industry uh, in business. And he managed Randy Hansen, 
who was that the Hendrix guitar impression guy uh, from up, Randy was out of Seattle. And he said, he calls me up one day and he says, do you want to play with Sam Kennison? I'm like, yeah. How do you, how did you swing that? He goes, well, Randy, when he's not doing his own Hendrix show, he is, he's Sam's guitar player. And, and you know, Sam's main guitar player. So he says, get down to the China club, like right away. This is like a Sunday afternoon. So I got to ride down to the China club. Uh, I had bumped, met Sam in, in, indirectly after something like Motley Crue show or this show. And everybody's like all coked up and partying and whatnot. So I don't know if Sam readily recognized, but like that, but he was really nice. You know, Hey, what are you doing, buddy? Hey, welcome. You know, come on, come on put the guys like that. You know, we're going to play. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and he said, you want to play the early show or the late show? And I said, I'll play the late show. He goes, all right, great. So they, they played an early set and it was an intermission. We rolled downstairs in the green room, the bar. Uh, and then uh, I got a picture with Sam, me and him together like that. And then uh, uh, the second show had started and I didn't know everybody had dissolved and went upstairs and I hear the music through the floor. So I run upstairs and they're on stage. They're already playing. And, and the, the bass tech was a friend of mine. And he looks he looks down at me. He sees me. And he goes, I was wondering where you were. He goes, you're supposed to be up there. I said, yeah. What happened? What happened was Jimmy Bain was up there. Jimmy somehow talked himself into, you know, getting up there and playing with Sam. And he, he was a bigger star name than I was. So, uh, and, 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 uh, and so he goes, he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. When they finished the song, he grabs Jimmy by the shoulders, brings him down the steps, stays there, unplugs his bass, plugs me in, pushes me up the stairs. He goes, go like that. And, and, and Jimmy's standing there. I could smell the alcohol as he went past me. Jimmy was like three sheets to the wind. And he's going, what, what, what happened, man? What happened? What's going on, man? Why am I not? And, and who's that guy? You know, like that. And, and at that point, Sam was up talking to the audience. This happened real fast. This, this changed. And he looks back at me. He goes, you ready? And I said, like that? Yeah. He goes, all right. Then like that. Now, across the stage, there's, like I said, Randy Hansen. And it was one of those pinch me moments. Okay. Get your laundry list. Little Stephen Van Zant on guitar. Uh, uh, Randy Castile on drums. Uh, Jean Beauvoir on guitar. And you couldn't miss him, the big white mohawk. Okay. We worked with the plasmatics and Ramones. All that. Really nice guy, uh, him. Uh, I don't remember who the keyboard player was. And a very inebriated... Uh, um, um, you say John Goodman was there? The John actor? Goodman, thank you. It was it was three sheets of the wind, and and he jammed on on blues harmonica, wow, like it was the Blues Brothers kind of a thing. Okay, and so we we did a, a rendition of Wild Thing, which allowed John to play some blues harp in it as well, and I, you could smell the alcohol off of him like you know three four feet away, uh, and you know he was still a big guy then. He didn't he didn't lose all that weight yet, but I mean I'm on stage with these massive stars. You know, and, and the closest that ever happened was, was you know, I, I was on stage with Ronnie Dio twice for a live rendition of We're Stars. So this was like the second a brush with greatness, if you will, and another hallmark from my resume to be playing on stage with these guys. And I'm telling you, uh, Chuck, there was a million cameras going off. It was like diamonds, stars, and people with all these pictures. I don't have one picture of me on stage with Sam Kennison oh, no. and all these guys playing. 
And, and years ago, somebody said, I was there. I took pictures. I'll, I'll, let, me, let me dig them out. I got to find them. I never heard back about him. So that must be I somewhere. Had... I bet. Have you ever talked to his brother? I think his. Uh... Yes. I'm friends with Bill Kinison. Okay. Uh, to this day. We wish each other happy birthday when our birthdays happen like that. And, and you know, Bill doesn't have anything either. And I've, I've oh. asked John, John Beauvoir. I said, you you remember we played, right? He goes, yeah. I said, do you have any pictures? He goes, no. <laughs> you know, and of course, Randy Castillo passed away. Rest in peace. He doesn't have any pictures. So I don't know anybody that has any pictures from the night that I played with Sam Kennison. So, or any recording. Well, you have the memory, there. though. That's that's even more important. Just the fact that you have that memory is amazing. Yeah, I have the one picture of me and Sam downstairs. I said in, in the in the green room. He put his arm around me and had a the bed bandana he ties around his head, and he's like partially making that that Sam Kennison face. You know that ah, yeah. Like that. And and that's all I have is that picture of Sam and I. Uh, but the, you know, those are those are some of my uh, my high points. You know. Yeah. Did lucky. you did you frequent the comedy clubs at all back then, or did you see a lot of the? Uh, did you have interactions? Because I know you later ended up doing acting in some movies where where you have friendships with some of the actors or comedians in the LA scene besides music? Uh, not so much the comedians. Uh, you know, you can say hi to them as they're coming off the stage or whatever. They A lot of people who are on their way up, uh, Andrew Dice Clay, uh, Roseanne Barr, uh, um, and, and the people, that, uh, Sam Kennison, those people and their, their entourage of other comedians who are, are working their way up. So, yeah, I, I've gone to the comedy store quite a few times and saw them starting out their careers on their way up before the, right before they'd hit like the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or or whatever the talk shows were like that. But um, yeah, there was a time when, when um, as we got into the 90s, after I, I uh, one of my last bands was Thunderball, which which Kenny Rubin was a manager of. He managed us for a while. We had, an, we had a national uh, Western Union commercial under our belt. Uh, with with uh, <clears throat> send the money, I'm trashing you. Trashing my stage. Uh, we we played a, a band called uh, Putrid Rage, and and so I was you know collecting some nice royalties from the commercial, and and so I would I, every once in a while I I get a call to do extra work from from wherever the there's a woman in uh, Janet Cunningham, and she was uh, a casting agent, and she would get work for all, tons of all of the kids. I say kids. Uh, 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 the, 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 we're hanging at the clubs, uh, you know, we're living hand to mouth and she'd get all this, all everybody, uh, uh, extra work. So we'd get to eat for a while and things like that. And, and a couple of bucks in your pocket and whatnot. So I, I, it was background, you know, and for a lot of movies, uh, fast forward, I worked with city Poitier on that, uh, uh, per personally. Um, there was a movie with Rob Lowe and James Spader. Uh, I was in that, um, in a movie uh, with uh, uh, Danny Trejo and C. Thomas Howe called Dilemma, yeah, right? Yeah, Dilemma, Dilemma. That, at that point, uh, I was working in the film industry, like like behind the camera. Okay. And and I, I was I started out as, a, as a, a production assistant and graduated really quick to assistant, like a prop, assistant prop master. So anything an actor touches is considered a prop. Uh, and if he goes over to the wall and touches a map on the wall, now that's a prop because he touched hmm. it like that incidental props and so i learned really quick about what it's like to be a, a, a prop guy in films and that first film i worked was was dilemma with uh because the the woman who was putting the crew together i had we all had pagers at the time and she paged me and she was like hysterical i need a need i need this i need this i need this I said, all right and i met them at their production office and and uh danny trejo was in it uh c thomas howell um uh 
Sophia Sheenas, Sheena, who was who was in The Crow, um, but faces you would recognize like that. And and so uh, uh, I was doing some props and stuff, and I met the guy who was doing the uh, the armor was the guy who handles all the weapons, uh, Bill Davis. And so we were kind of like you know he was a ex military guy. My my interest in in all things military had come up to speed. So we would talk about military things and guns and ammo and things like that. And his assistant was an actual United States Marine, uh, 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 Marine Corps, uh, uh, Marine. And he he would work with Bill whenever he was not, you know, on duty or whatever like that. But he couldn't always be there. So Bill says, I need a guy I could call all the time. You want to work with me? And I said, yeah, sure. So you know, whenever Bill would get a call for a film, he'd call me and I we, we'd go. And, and he was a prop master. I was the assistant prop master. And and we'd uh, we sit down on a production meetings, and you go down to script, and you figure out what you're going to need by way of props. Who's going to need what? What kind of watch does he wear? What kind of person is he? What kind of does he wear a ring? Does he have a smoky smoke? Uh, and things like that. And and when it came down to the weapons, we had to figure out what kind of weapons he needed. So you know, Bill had a, a lot of weapons that were uh, uh, adapted to fire blanks, which we did a lot of, like that. And and so. Uh, I was working in, in the film industry with with the props and the weapons and things like that. Uh, I worked on the TV series uh, Air America with Lorenzo Lamas for for uh, their whole first season, uh, and it was weapons heavy, weapons intensive. I mean, it was AKs, M four M fours, AR fifteens, of course, a lot of uh, uh, pistols, hands, handguns, things like that. Uh, same thing with with uh, uh, C. Thomas Howell and Danny Trejo. There's a lot of gun heavy gun activity in that. Uh, I got a I got a a bit part, uh, and one of the scenes it was a shootout with with a with a, a felon, and the director says, "You want to be one of the SWAT guys? I'm short. Want to be because so we don't have to ha- hire extra guys, but that uh, from casting." So he said, "Yeah, go go over to wardrobe." And so I I dressed up in a SWAT outfit, uh, and there's a quick clip of me coming around a building like that, and, and I, I fired. Uh, there was a scene later in the film where we were doing a a SWAT takedown of Danny Trejo's character. Uh, and I was working with a guy who was an actual Navy SEAL. So so we we worked really well. To, I mean, we had the SWAT, everything like that, and the gear and all. And I was I was like right along doing like he goes, have you done this before? I said, no. He goes, well, you seem to have an aptitude for it like that, you know. And and you were doing the hand signals like they do and, and all that stuff. So uh, I started to graduate a little bit more into knowing what I was doing like that. And at one point, I, I wound up uh, um, after the L.A. riots the Rodney King riots uh, uh, and seeing the smoke columns coming up from South central towards Hollywood. And I said, you know, I'm a little older, but uh, I want to be on the right side of the fence. If the shit hits the fan. And back then in LA, we used to have, you know, uh, expos gun shows at, at various uh, fairgrounds. So the Pomona fairgrounds had a, a big gun show and I went there and the, uh, the California state military reserve had a big display. And they were recruiting. And the Marines were there. They had their armored vehicles. And it was the military vehicle collectors. They were all in like this one area. It was all military village. And, and I was talking to uh, uh, the top sergeant. I said, I heard some rumor that, you know, uh, you guys, are you have civilians. It's not like joining the Army Army active. But you have civilians. And, and if they're on duty, uh, if they have long hair, they can put it like under a wig. Is, is that true? He goes, I heard something about that. He goes, let me look into that. I said, if you could do that for me and I don't have to cut my hair, I'll, I'll wear it under a wig. I'll join. 
He says, and he called me back a couple days later. He goes, we can get you that that special dispensation as long as you look, you know, high and tight, you know, a short hair, not touching your collar while you're on duty. You you can you can do that. We'll do that. I said, all right, fine, I'm in. And that was uh, 1995. I, I joined the California State Military Reserve, and and uh, uh, you swear to the military code of justice and all the articles. Uh, you wear the uniform. Uh, it's not active duty, so you don't get a DD-214 like an active military guy would. But, you know, we did parade ground stuff. I was in a, a, a electronics communications unit uh, like that. So we did a lot of radio traffic, communications between stations, things like that, opening a net, closing the net, stuff like that. I got uh, uh, attaboy commendations from my superiors for, for sticking to the book and doing it like, like that. And we go out and we do field exercises and set up the radio. And I, I went out to the gun shows. I bought military camo nets. I bought spreaders. All out of, everything's out of pocket. Uh, I put my TA-50 together, which is all of your own personal gear, your uniform, uh, uh, your name tags, insignias, uh, uh, um, well, your backpack, all, you know, everything you need as, as, a, as a soldier. I put all of that together. Only thing is we were not allowed to use firearms at that time. They do now. But they didn't at that point, at that time. And I was like a gung-ho guy. I was the first guy in, in, in of all the recruits in my unit to put together that whole kit. And, and so uh, they brought me in as a corporal, you know, instead of a recruit or as a private. Uh, like if you have something more of value to bring in, they'll bring you in a, a little bit of a higher rank. So I was brought in as a corporal, which is an NCO, non-commissioned officer like that. And and I was a gung-ho guy. You know, I was I was, I was doing everything right like that and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and I was in them for till ninety five to two thousand, because you could leave whenever you wanted. I was about to go for my my sergeant stripe up to Camp Roberts up up in the Bay Area, but that would mean that I'd have to uh, forego working in the film industry because if you're not available, again, somebody else will take your job. Good luck getting back in. Right. And that was my livelihood. That was my bread and butter. So I I couldn't take that week or two off to go up to Camp Roberts for my stripe. And I just, that's, I, I said, I put in my, my resignation. I said, guys, I gotta, I can't, it, it can't infringe on my, on my lifestyle right. like that. And so they understood and I left like that. And, and so I, I, you know, people ask me, are you a veteran? And like, I had, I had a check. I, I checked with the guys that were in a the unit. They said, you wore the uniform, you swore to military justice. You know, you, we, we were all, it's like, it's like a lowest branch of the army. I said, so you're a veteran. So it's like a gray area like that. So <laughs> well, I, I, put cool. in, I put in five years with the state military reserve like yeah. that. And what we, we would, we would like augment the national guard. If the national guard got activated in case of a, a state emergency, if the governor activated everybody, then we step in, we're like the shortstop. We fill in the hole while the other guys are doing something over there. They, they got to move to that. So we move here, they move there, we move here and we cover them like that. And that's, gotcha. we, we, there's a couple of state emergencies when Schwarzenegger was the governor, and we got activated, you know, and I was down at the base like all weekend, uh, you know, like that, and and uh, and then we got some unit commendations, some ribbons, or ribbon awards, and things like that, uh, which I have, you know, uh, I posted to Facebook every once in a while. So it was a way of giving back, you know. Yeah. My, my 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 dad was in the Navy in Korea. My uncle, his brother, was a Marine in Korea. Uh, a lot of my family, my ancestors, were all in military or police or whatever. So. I was a little too old to join like the army and stuff and commit to that. But uh, this was a way of giving back and, and, you know, uh, uh, just doing what I could 
Yeah. Like that, to, to give. that I know I was there every every weekend, uh, every the first weekend of every month. I was down at the base at Los, Los Alamitos and we drill and and do all of our, our, our exercise this stuff, the radio, all our military communications, things like that and such and so forth. And we assisted the National Guard in their exercises. Yeah, that's so. cool. Did you also um I know I got to probably get, let, let you go here in a few minutes, but I did want to see I thought I read something that you jammed with Guns and Roses. When was that? There was um, there was a concert at Santa Monica Civic, and I think it was either Guns N' Roses was playing or Warrant, one of those or, or was playing Poison, something like that. Hmm. And there was a bunch of us rockers, you know, hanging out on the side, uh, you know, by the by the backstage area, and we all got brought up on stage, and and we did uh, a rendition of Cheat Trick. We did Baby Baby Likes to Rock. Like that, and and you know, I was rocking out with with you know Poison guys, and I remember Duff at that point. He was he was wearing a flannel shirt around his waist like a kilt, which he did many times after that. So like that, and you know, we were all like rubbing shoulders with each other up on stage, things like that, and 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 so that was that was another like nice little high point, you know, because I was popular, I was on the scene a lot, and and so let's get Rick up here, let's get Rick up here, like that. So the 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 backstabbing thing wasn't always prevalent. Because a lot of these guys, we were all friends. We got along with them, and they knew me from Steeler, like that. So I, I did have, a, a, you know, a reputation as, as far as like a pro guy, like that. Uh, it was just you know, difficult getting into various gigs. Uh, you know, I was I was almost an angel at several different points during my my career, and it was very close. Right before I joined Steeler, Greg Jeffrey asked me, "Do you want to do you want to join Angel?" And he said Rudy Sarzo was filling in. And it was like that fork in the road. Do I join the band of my dreams and get to play with Punky or do I stay with Steeler? You know, it was a hard decision, but, you know, I stayed with Steeler. And at that point, Angel had, had fallen apart not long after that. Uh, they had come in the 90s. Punky, Frank and Barry came over to my house. Uh, we talked more about possibly doing something and it kind of fizzled. Nothing happened like that. So there were several times when it looked like I was going to, you know, uh, get get to do something with Angel. You know, and I still had that that Punky Meadows rock and roll look. You know, uh, I don't have that anymore. So, um, you know, it's again, it's a lot of it's the right place at the right time. Who you know, uh, I was not uh, into the the party scene. It was the party ninjas, all the guys who would tour. They were in L.A. When they come back off tour, all right, we got to do something. I'm itching. I want to play. So they start putting on these all star jams. And I'd get invited to these all-star jams, and I'd sit there all night in the dressing room with my bass, watching all of these guys go by. What are you going to play, Rick? I don't know. They haven't called me yet. And then it's over. Rick, well, I thought you were going to play. So did I. Well, there was a couple of guys, bass players, played with big bands, and, and, and they didn't really rotate to let other guys in. So they would kind of commandeer that, uh, that bass spot. Uh, uh, Jimmy Bain was one of them. Uh, I think Phil Susan was the other one, and, and it was like they were always well-connected guys, and they all got you know there was the you know the party ninjas, you know, and then they were all half of Peru up their nose and stuff like that. But uh, I wasn't in that clique. I, I wasn't wow. in that crowd. You know, I'm watching the guys from Black and Blue go by on the stage, come off, and Rich Perry go on, and this one and that one. I'm like Rick, where are you going? I said I don't know. I'm, I'm here. They asked me to come, and I asked the coordinator, "When am I up?" He goes, "In, in a song or two. We'll get to you." And and then it would be the end of the night. I pack up my base and go home. That that happened a lot. Wow. That's sad. Yeah, well, you know that's that was Hollywood. That's that's the mentality of 
of the people that I, and the caliber of, of people that I had to deal. This was Kevin DeBro's, you know, prophecy again coming oh, back wow. to me like that. Uh, you know, when I when I got out of the living history reenactment, you know, the, the Polish wing who saw as my ancestry and all that, I took a, a hiatus away from the industry for uh, like about a decade or so. Getting back in around 2012 was tough. It was like get the get the wagons and make a circle. Don't let him back in. That's kind of how it felt. And my wife would see this, and she's like, "Why are these people treating you like this?" I said, "I don't know." You know, it was hard getting back in. There's a couple of bands here and there that would let me get up and jam with them. That was my calling card. They would see me play, and they go, "Hey, you know, I got another jam coming. Why don't you come and play?" Now it started to open up, and I was yeah. playing you know various jams in Orange County. Uh, uh, at this club, at that club, with these people, and they say, "Oh, well, he's, he's he's not bad. He's he's a good guy. He's a good player. He's I, I get along with everybody. I compliment everybody. I, I praise everybody, and and I just put the good and the positive out there. And, and if great. you can make if you can make a positive difference in the lives of others, you've won. You, you've you've already won at the Super Bowl before you've even walked on the field. I you know, love it. It's yeah. a great mentality. That's that's what I've been doing." And you have the second chance now with Freak Show. I hope this thing blows up. I hope it takes off. I hope you guys play the Monsters of Rock cruise. You get a good opening slot on a tour and all sorts of great stuff to, to come for you. I, I'm, I'll do my part and share as much as I can. Well, you know, from your lips to God's ears, I thank you. Uh, I, I hope that uh, that comes to fruition and it'll be great. You know, uh, um, uh, you know when, when, uh, when, when my friend Randy Rand passed away, autograph uh i was friends with randy and a lot of people in his circle didn't know that we had worked for a, a telemarketing company in the 90s um and we got to be really good friends um uh, when he passed away i had approached the band i said you know when the dust settles would be would you consider letting me come in and try out and i never got any response or anything back i got completely blown off and it's like just just like the 80s it's, it's 80s mentality all over again Rick Fox, no, you're a problem. You're going to have a bad reputation. You you try to take over people's bands, and you're difficult to get along with. I'm like, where is this stupid sandbox attitude coming from? I have no idea, you know. And and so, uh, uh, obviously, uh, they've had some legal problems over the name and whatnot. Uh, and I've become friends with Steve Lynch. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I said, Hey, if anything ever happens, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring. If you, if you want a bass player, let me know. And I'd become friends with Regina, Regina, Randy's uh, uh, wife, his widow. And, and Randy passed away like a month right before my wife did. So we were kind of helping each other mentally go through the grief counseling thing like that. And, and so, you know, Regina said, if, if, if autograph ever reforms, you have my blessing to replace Randy. I'm like, well, thank you. That's that's a very high compliment, for, and I thank you for that. She goes, well, you know, you helped me a lot up here, and you know, with helping me get through the fact that my my husband passed away. And I said, well, we're all helping each other. You know, I've been married to to my wife Tara for like 22 years. I'm still in the grieving process. It's I can't forget that. Now, now I'm in Missouri by myself. You know, we bought the house together. We're going to start over here, and then a year after we moved here cancer came back and, and took her and, and there was nothing I could do about it. And so here I sit, you know, wonder where, what's next Lord, you know, where do I go from here? Yeah. And, and I'm I, sorry I, to I, hear I, that, but I think that the good things are coming. I think this freak show thing is going to be a great project for you. And I'm excited for you to, to showcase your base talents in the, in this band. It's going to be amazing. 
it's been a while since I've, I've hit the stage. So, you know, it's going to be a little nervous the first couple of, sure. you know, first sure. couple of steps out, but uh, you know, once once we're past like the third song, I start to yeah. get a, just to get a little more relaxed. All the greatest things in life are on the other side of fear, so you just got to push through that. Uh, oh, the, is the album out now, or is it just a couple songs? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's out. Here's a here's the there's a little glare right. on it. There's the CD, yeah. uh, and and uh, both Greg and my pictures are included. Oh, in, 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 on the liner notes, that's cool. Like that. So they did, they did pictures with Greg. But then when when they flew me to Reno and we shot the two videos for uh, You Shine and It Hurts Me, uh, we did a photo session. And some of those pictures are included in the liner notes on, on the Freak Show album like oh, that. Great. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great album. I, I advocate for people to go out and get a copy of it. If you're really into the, the 80s rock, you know, that we're all missing now, the, the whole ant, the, the 90s thing, the anti-90s is, attitude is coming back because it's like everybody's missing – the nostalgia of the eighties. This album is just what the doctor ordered. It's full of it. You know, it, this is, you, you love eighties rock and, and metal and great songs and hooks and great vocals. Freak show. You can't, you can't go wrong. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rick. And uh, we'll be in touch. It was an honor being on your show. Uh, 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 it's a high, high privilege a feather in my cap to be on, on your show. It's, it's a, a great honor. So thank you for having me on. Yeah. Thanks and, for taking the time. It was fun. Uh, great stories. My pleasure and my, my, my honor. And it was a privilege. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye, Rick. All right. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the full podcast episode. Please help support our guests by following them on social media and purchasing their products, whether it be a book, album, film, or other thing. And if you have a few extra dollars, please consider donating it to their favorite charity. If you want to support the show, you can like, share, and comment on this episode on social media and YouTube. And if you want to go the extra mile, you can give us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Finally, make sure you're subscribed to the show on YouTube for the video versions and other exclusive content. We appreciate your support. Have a great rest of your day and shoot for the moon.